Let's turn now, friends, as the Lord would help us, um, to the portion we read. <coughs> Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to look at the uh, temptations of our Lord from the beginning of chapter 4 down to verse 11. <coughs> now, the um, background to these temptations are hugely important if we are going to fully appreciate what Satan was trying to do in our Lord's life and what he will often do in your own life as well. And in particular, the declaration which the Father made regarding the Son in verse 17 of the previous chapter. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, it's that declaration in particular that Satan was attacking by asking Jesus the question, if you are the Son of God. Now, meanwhile, uh, we'll um, expand on that shortly, but there are three temptations here, and no doubt some of you will have noticed that they are given in a different order by Matthew and Luke. Uh, Mark, for some reason, only makes a brief reference uh, to the temptations. He doesn't go into much detail on them at all. And John mentions them not at all. I have no explanation for that. Now, the difference between Matthew and Luke is worth noting and is worth asking, why is the order different? between the two Gospels. And it's worth asking that question, even if we cannot give a definitive answer to the question. Matthew's order is as follows. The stones into bread, first of all, then the incident on the pinnacle of the temple, and then thirdly, the offer of global rain. But when you turn to Luke, you'll discover that the order is Stones into bread, they agree that that's the first one. But then Luke tells us the second one was the offer of global rain. And the third one, the incident of the pinnacle of the temple. Now, in reality, my friends, these temptations could only have occurred in one order. They could only have occurred in one order. So who has the right order? And why was it changed? And does it matter? Well, these two evangelists were, of course, inspired and led by the same Holy Spirit. And we can be assured of this. The Holy Spirit makes no mistakes, none whatsoever. That's why we believe in an inspired and an infallible and an inerrant word of God. Now, for what it's worth, I believe that Matthew has the correct order. But I can only give you a speculative answer as to why Luke changed that order. 
it may indicate to us not to expect order in anything that Satan does. Don't expect order. Sin is an irrational thing, and Satan is an irrational creature. Don't try to second-guess him in your own life when he comes with temptations or with anything else for that matter. Assume absolutely nothing regarding his methodology. The temptations he will use against you today may not be, and most likely will not be, the temptations he used against you yesterday or the temptations he will use against you tomorrow. They may differ wildly. But of this you may be sure. He knows you. And he knows you possibly better than you know yourself. And given that he knows you, he will play on your every weakness to the max. On your every weakness. That's how he got Judas Iscariot. He played on the greed he knew lurked in that wretched man's heart. This is how he got David, the great king of the Old Testament. And we'll see more about this in the evening if we are to be spared. He played on the lust he knew lurked in David's heart. And not only so, but Satan will also take delight in showing you and in showing me that your strong points and my strong points are no match against his devices. No match against his devices. And something else. Always remember that what you consider to be your strong points as a Christian may very well, my friend, turn out to be your weakest points. May very well turn out to be your weakest points. Well, having said all of that, now let's turn to these temptations. And I want to notice, first of all, the fasting our Lord undertook here, because this is significant to the testing itself. Verse 2, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. Now this is a, an increasingly dark picture for our Lord. He's been cast out from that moment of sweet fellowship that he enjoyed at the River Jordan, where um, very um, occasionally he was uh, humanly conscious of being so near to his Father and to the Holy Spirit. It's one of these rare occasions in the Bible where we find the Son of God in the water, we find the Father speaking from heaven, and we find the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove. That must have been a moment of tremendous sweet fellowship to our Lord. But now he's been cast out of that, led into a hostile wilderness where he will have no friend nor companion to call upon. Now, he stood there for six weeks, 40 days, 40 nights, no food, no water. In other words, 
At the end of it, he was at his weakest since the time of his infancy. And at that same time, he begins to enter into the second greatest battle of his life. The greatest battle would be at Calvary. The second greatest battle was against the devil. Now this is all part of a catalogue of suffering on the part of our Lord. The moment that he was able to appreciate in his human mind who he was, he began to suffer. That had to be so. The Holy Son of God living in a sinful world. So that wherever he looked, and whomsoever he looked upon, including his own mother, he saw what he hated most. Sin characterized everything in his line of vision. Even though it was written that he is of purer eye than to behold evil and cannot look upon iniquity. But he saw that iniquity everywhere. Every day. That, my friends, is suffering we cannot begin to understand. <clears throat> Here in the wilderness, he adds, strangely, to his own suffering by deliberately weakening himself through this fasting. You see, there was, he did this voluntarily, there was no law that required Jesus to fast here. He did this voluntarily. Now, we assume that it included both food and water. So, for almost six weeks, he is without any sustenance to maintain his strength. And remember, he's in a wilderness. He's not in a hospital bed. There are no medics around to help and comfort him. No shelter from the sun by day and no protection from the cold by night. Now you ask yourself, why in the world would the Holy Son of God expose himself to that kind of suffering and to these temptations? Well, let me suggest two answers to you. First of all, he did this, my friends, to show those of you who are Christians here today that when you suffer, when you are tempted, you can know that you have a very special representative in heaven. This is how he's described for us in the Bible. A faithful high priest, is in Hebrews chapter 4, who was tempted in all points like us, we are. So my friends, that in our worst temptations, we can be assured of sympathy and understanding and help and ultimately deliverance from our temptations and indeed from our suffering. That's the first reason he endured this and exposed himself to this. The second reason he wanted to demonstrate to Satan that he, Jesus, 
could withstand him, Satan, even at his weakest. Notice in verse 2, he was afterward unhungered, as if to emphasize how weak he must have been. Now, that's the point at which Satan came to him with the first temptation, before Jesus actually ate or drank anything. So let's look at that first temptation in verse 3. If thou be the Son of God, command these stones be made bread. Now notice that word, if. If. Here's Satan playing on the events that had just recently taken place six weeks before at the river Jordan. You see, it wasn't merely God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and God the Son that were present at the Jordan. Satan was there as well. He was observing all that was going on, and he heard what the God the Father had said to God the Son when he said, Thou, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, it's hard for me to know what Satan resented most regarding these words. Was it that God was confirming the man from Nazareth, the carpenter, was his beloved son? Was that what he resented most? Or was it hearing God the Father saying, Of them I am well pleased. In any case, Satan was determined to undermine that declaration as much as possible. And that's the significance of that word, if. You see, he's, you know, Satan, my friends, is as sly and sneaky. He's looking at Jesus' circumstances. There he is, the Holy Son of God, tired, hungry, thirsty, and lonely. And he does what he did at the very beginning of time to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He asks a subtle question designed to plant a seed of doubt in the mind of Jesus. This is what he did with Eve and with Adam. Did God say? Did God say? Planting that seed of doubt in that woman's mind. Well, here he asks Jesus a different question, for sure, but he has the same intention. If thou art the Son of God. In other words, if you really are the Son of God, how on earth can you possibly be in this state and in this condition? Now, the challenge here, my friends, wasn't for Jesus to perform a miracle turning stones into bread. That wasn't, that's a decoy. That's a decoy. That's playing on the very real physical hunger Jesus was enduring at this time. Turning stones into bread would be no problem for the Son of God. Satan knew that full well. Although he hasn't yet performed any miracle in public, Satan knew that he could. Now, there's something else important here as well. What Satan asked for here, when you think about it, it doesn't sound evil, does it? 
He's saying to a man who could perform this miracle if he wanted to, a man who is hungry, turn these stones into bread. That's not necessarily evil. In fact, it seems a reasonable thing to do to a hungry man. But that, my friends, is Satan's expertise. He makes evil seem reasonable. Are we not seeing this all over the world these days? Aren't we seeing it throughout our own nation? He has convinced most, I dare say, of our fellow citizens that evil practices are reasonable things to do. Part of Satan's agenda and the real temptation here was for Jesus to prove his sonship by obeying him, Satan. But you see, my friends, Jesus didn't have to prove his sonship. He knew who he was. He had that witness in himself. He had that witness in himself, in his heart. You should listen to this. In fact, there are three lessons for us to learn here. If you are a born-again Christian here this morning, you don't have to prove that to anybody. You don't have to prove it to this church, to any session, to any elder. You don't have to prove it to anybody. Why? Because you have that witness in your own heart. Listen to these words from Romans 8 verse 16. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. What? That we are the children of God. Now, my friends, you will have to demonstrate that you are living a life consistent with that belief that you cherish in your heart. <coughs> but you cannot prove to me that you're a born-again Christian. You can't prove that, but you can prove it to yourself. You know, and you should know, because you have the same witness that Jesus Christ had in his heart. The second lesson we should learn here, remember the subtlety of Satan's temptations mm -hmm. and how he can make evil seem reasonable and how he can make darkness seem like light. He's doing it all the time, more than ever, throughout the Western world today, even within the pale of the Christian judge. And that's why we are warned by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11. Satan himself is transformed into what? An angel of light. An angel of light. Watch out for that in your own life. These suggestions that Darkness is actually light. That evil is actually quite reasonable. The third lesson we should learn here is on the brilliant answer that Jesus gave in this temptation and the others, as we shall see, to Satan. Verse 4. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. It 
is written. There are numerous principles embedded in that answer, and none more important than the focus it puts on the Bible you have in your hand here this morning. It is written. And that Bible, my friends, must be our refuge in every temptation, in every challenge, in every trial, in every tribulation we have to go through. Always resort to the Word of God. What saith the Scriptures? And has always been the philosophy of the best of the Lord's people down the ages of history. Let me move on to the second temptation. Verses 5, 6 and 7. Well, the devil taking him up into the holy city and so on. Now, the first question we have to ask here and endeavour to answer, was this a literal thing or was this a vision? Was it literal or was it a vision? You see, my friends, that question is hugely important because if we say this happened literally, that Jesus went with the devil to Jerusalem. That poses a lot of problems. If that happened, then Jesus is no longer in the wilderness. He's no longer in the wilderness. And yet, when you look at the next temptation, he's back in the wilderness again. And not only that, it's hard for me to see that Jesus Christ would travel from this wilderness to Jerusalem and back again with Satan. It's hard for me to see that. And not only so, but if Jesus literally went to Jerusalem and back again with Satan, would that not constitute obeying Satan, the very thing he had to avoid? Remember that biblical visions were what we would call today virtual reality. Virtual reality. Isaiah found himself in the virtual reality of heaven. That day when he went to the temple and he spoke in the, these words, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. It was a virtual reality vision of the throne of God in heaven. You'll find this again with the prophet Ezekiel when he saw the virtual reality of a graveyard in that portion we know as the Valley of Dry Bones. So this second temptation was in all likelihood, in my view, a virtual reality vision. But whatever the case, Satan begins with the same sneaky question, demonstrating that he was still trying to undermine the declaration of God the Father at the River Jordan. Verse 6, if thou be the Son of God. In fact, this turns out to be one of the favourite temptations of Satan against God's people. Few of you in here this morning who are born-again Christians, few of you, have escaped this temptation in one way or another. Isn't that true? Satan questioning your sonship. Are you really a Christian? How can you be a Christian? He'll raise this question in a thousand different ways, but it's always with the same intention. 
undermining your confidence in the Savior and in God, your Father. Now that's one reason why Jesus urged believers, always raise this in prayer. Didn't our Lord give us a model prayer upon which we should model all our prayers? And what's the first thing we should say? Our Father, which art in heaven. Constantly remind yourself, Christian, that you have a Father in heaven and that you are his son or his daughter. Meanwhile, Satan then challenged Jesus to test God's promise of protection, which we refer to in Psalm 91. Now, on that pinnacle of the temple in this virtual reality vision, he challenges in verse 6, throw yourself down, go on, cast thyself down. <coughs> and this is where Satan quotes Psalm 91. And it's a quotation, let me ask, it's a quotation that many Christians would not recognize as messianic were it not for this incident. If you were reading Psalm 91 without knowing about these temptations, about this particular aspect of the temptation, would you have recognized the words of Psalm 91 as being messianic, referring to Jesus? I don't think you would. But Satan knew. He knew. He knew because, strangely enough, and paradoxically as it may sound, he knows his Bible. And he possibly knows his Bible better than you do, and better than I do. And because of that, my friends, he will use it. And he will use it against you. He will use it to undermine you. He will use it to mock you. And he will use it to rubbish you. And perhaps you've already discovered that to your cost. Now, when he quoted this verse from Psalm 91, this again goes back to his subtlety and sneaky ways, he actually missed out the most important part of those verses in Psalm 91. He missed out these words, to keep thee in all thy ways. This was the promise of the Father to the Son, to keep thee in all thy ways. Thy ways, the ways of God, that is. Jesus knew if he rose to this challenge, he would no longer be in the ways of God. He would no longer be in the ways of God. So he responded. Verse 7, it is written, yet again, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt. The Lord thy God. It's as if to say, Jesus, this is always going to be my answer. This is how I always respond to your temptations. It is written, it is written, it is written. Now, what an example that is for you and I to follow. Demonstrating not only to Satan, but to everybody else who cares to listen to us, our total and utter dependence upon the Bible. <coughs> upon the word of God in 
our lives. And this is why we must be convinced as the Lord's people, if the Bible says this and that and the next thing is wrong, then wrong it must be. And it doesn't matter how many people are of the opinion that there's nothing wrong with it. If God says it's wrong, wrong it must be and continue to be. I want to make one particular application of this to our own lives. Isn't it true, those of you who are Christians, and to a certain extent those of you perhaps are not Christians here this morning, that your worst temptations take place in the virtual reality of your imagination? Isn't that true? In the virtual reality of your imagination. Now here's the danger. Satan knows precisely how to manipulate your imagination and mine. He can stir up, my friends, the worst lusts and desires in the private arena of our imagination. Nobody else will know about it but you, God, and Satan. So, my friend, if you find yourself in that virtual reality, that arena of imagination that is exposed to the wiles of the evil one, get on your knees. Get on your knees. Pray, God, for deliverance from it. Let me move to the third temptation. Verses 8 and 9. The devil took him up to an exceeding high mountain and so on all these things he said to, to Jesus, will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Now this is why I'm suggesting to you that Matthew has the right order here. Because this, in my understanding of these temptations, this was the object of the exercise all along. To get Jesus Christ to bow before Satan. Everything else was preliminary to getting Jesus to worship Satan. Now Satan well knew, in the other temptations, well knew that Jesus could provide food for himself. He knew that. He also knew that Satan would survive a fall from any height. But how to get him to his knees, worshipping him? The Prince of Darkness. Here we see the frightening genius of Satan. He knew three important matters relevant to all of us. First of all, he knew about the Old Testament promise first given to Abraham and later recorded by the psalmist that Messiah would inherit the earth, not just geographic Israel, but the earth. We're singing about this a moment ago in Psalm 2. I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Satan knew that promise was there. That this 
promise was given by the Father to the Son. The second thing he knew was the Old Testament prophecy on the global evangelism by the Christian church. We'll be singing about this in Psalm 102 in our concluding praise. When the people gather together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord, Satan knew that was waiting for the Messiah. But perhaps most significantly, he knew that all of this depended on Jesus being victorious on the cross of Calvary. So he plans a shortcut for Jesus to acquire all of this and thereby avoid all the suffering, the death, the cross and the grave. So in verse 8 he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Here's what your father promised you. There it is, set out before you. And then he promises Jesus in verse 9, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. You see, Satan, my friends, considered himself, and from a certain perspective, rightly so, considered himself the ruler of the world before Jesus Christ came. And he was. That's why Jesus, three occasions, referred to him as the prince of this world. He ruled the darkness that prevailed the world and the earth before Jesus came. Uh, prior to that uh, gospel light flooding the earth, Satan was king over all. And he knew that would end if Jesus Christ was allowed to go to that cross. He knew that he would be defeated in the battle of Calvary. So, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> here he tries to avoid all of that by offering Christ this shortcut. In other words, he was saying to Jesus, look, you don't necessarily have to suffer. You don't necessarily have to die. Dominion and rule and reign are all yours if you fall down and worship me. It's as if he was saying to him, it's either that or falling on your knees in Gethsemane, begging your father to avoid the cup of suffering. But thankfully, my friend, Satan was far removed from understanding the mind and the mission of our Lord. His global reign, the global reign of Jesus Christ as King of Kings, wasn't going to be about power. It was going to be about love and was going to be about redemption. So Jesus responded, first of all, by dismissing Satan. Verse 10. Get thee hence, Satan, this is an imperative, it's a command. Be gone with you. Withdraw yourself. It's over. As if you were saying to him, you tried your best, you tried your worst, and you failed. Now leave. And then came the inevitable quote in verse 10. It is written. Once again, it is written. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Now let me close 
with making two uh, brief applications to this. Or two lessons, if you like, to learn. Number one, the victory Jesus enjoyed in these temptations belonged to you here this morning. Belong to every born-again Christian. Because you see, he was tempted and he overcame, not merely as Jesus of Nazareth, but as our representative and as our covenant head, so that his victory at Calvary, not just in the temptations, but at Calvary, his victory becomes your victory and my victory. Listen to how he put this in Revelation 3, verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. That's the promise. This is what it means. You're more than conquerors in Christ that loves us. We can be victorious, my friends, because he was victorious. Where does that leave yourself here this morning? Here you are in your church. I guess most of you belong to this congregation. How meaningful is this to you? How challenging is this to you? If Jesus Christ is not going to help you, if he's not your saviour, if he's not your deliverance, who will be? No one. No one. Put your trust in him. Cast yourself upon his mercy. Ask him to come into your life and to make you a conqueror and overcomer as he was himself. And second, the comfort Jesus enjoyed in this victory, not only in his temptations, but also in Gethsemane, and I believe when he rose from the dead. That comfort also belongs to you if you're a born-again Christian here this morning. Verse 11 we read, The devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. This is possibly the most neglected teaching in the entire Christian church. The teaching on the ministry of angels. Why do you suppose we have been allowed to meet here this morning for over an hour without any interruption from the Prince of Darkness? Why? Because we're surrounded by angels. The angel of the Lord encamps round about those that fear him. Oh no, of course we don't see them. But we should believe that they're here. And that's our protection when we come together in the public worship of God. And the gospel shouts to every believer what the Old Testament prophet uh, declared to Israel. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Here's part of that comfort. The presence 
of angels in our lives. Aren't we told specifically in Hebrews chapter 1 that they are ministering spirits ministering to the heirs of salvation. Is that not you? Is that not me? If the ministering spirits of heaven are not ministering in your life and will not be ministering in your life when you draw your last breath, other angels will. The fallen angels of the kingdom of darkness, they will minister to you and drag you with themselves into that pit of endless pain and suffering. I would urge you, my friends, cast yourselves upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. Remember that he was crucified with his arms wide open. And those arms are still wide open in the gospel. Why? Welcoming sinners into his own bosom. Trust him, my friends. Obey him. Love him. Walk with him. To the glory of his name. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we thank thee that we are able to read and understand and appreciate the insatiable riches of Christ to some degree, that we are able to gather in this way to worship the living God in peace and in the felicity of the gospel. Remember each one of us, whatever our circumstance may be, whatever our relationship with a God may be, and grant that thou would do a saving work in the life of each one of us, and that those of us who are committed Christians, that we would grow in our knowledge of Christ, that we would grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would grow in our appreciation and expectation of greater blessings to come. Continue with us into what remains of thy day, for Jesus' sake. Amen. 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 Our concluding praise, friends, is in Psalm 102. <clears throat> Second version, there are two versions of this Psalm, 102, and we'll sing from 16 down to 22. <coughs> God in his glory shall appear when Sion he builds and repairs. He shall regard and lend his ear unto the needy's humble prayers. The afflicted's prayer he will not scorn, all times it shall be on record. All generations yet unborn shall praise and magnify the Lord. 16 to 22 to God's praise. <clears throat> God in his glory shall appear when
friends, God willing, the evening service will be the usual at six as usual at six thirty. Prayer meeting on Thursday at the usual time of seven thirty will be taken by Mr. Derek McLean. And the last service of the Bewley communion season will be at six thirty this evening, uh, conducted by Reverend David Fraser. The services next Sabbath and twelfth November are at the usual times, 11, 6.30, and the preacher expected is Reverend Kenneth MacDonald, retired. Now, prior notice of meeting arranged for Thursday, 16th November. Mr. McGlynn, the inter-moderator, will meet with the congregation on the 16th of November at 7.30 p.m. Now, this is a formal congregational meeting. This meeting is for the people in the congregation to give their views regarding the vacancy and hopefully agree on a way forward. These are all the intimations. Let's stand to receive the benediction. <coughs> now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.